Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. China has launched the first module of its new space station. What are the implications for international space research and cooperation? Hello and welcome to Babbage from Economist Radio, our weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at The Economist. Also coming up on today's show, how looking to the night skies could change the way cancers are diagnosed. We are substituting cells for the stars and galaxies. And why less is often more. If you look at someone like Marie Kondo, she's built this entire business empire out of pointing out to people something that, you know, maybe you think would be obvious. Simplicity has its attractions. But first... On Thursday, April 29th, China launched the first module of a new space station. This will be part of China's third and largest space station yet, and is due for completion next year. The space station will have room for up to three astronauts. It's considerably smaller than the 11-person International Space Station, or ISS, but the project demonstrates China's ever-growing space ambitions. Launch from Wanchang in South China using a Long March 5B rocket was successful and placed the roughly 22.5 ton Tianhe core module for China's space program into low Earth orbit. Andrew Jones is a correspondent with Space News, specializing in China's space program. And among the issues he's been investigating is the controversial re entry of the rocket that launched China's space station module. When countries are launching a large rocket, the first stage will do a lot of the heavy lifting. And by design, this core stage will not reach orbital velocity. So to reach orbit, you have to go both up, but also reach a certain speed. Otherwise, you come back down. So normally, a core stage will be cut off before it reaches orbital velocity, and it will have a ballistic trajectory and land somewhere predefined in the ocean. What happened with the Long March 5B is that this core stage reached orbital velocity. And so once it's up there, it's very hard to predict when and where it's going to come back down unless there is a specific capability to do a deorbit burn and bring this piece of rocket back down where you would want it to happen. So it seems that China has either aimed to perform some kind of deorbit burn and it didn't happen, or as with a similar launch last year, which was the test flight of this rocket, They simply put this core stage up into orbit and just were happy to see it come down wherever it came down. This sounds a little bit dangerous and irresponsible. Well, the initial response from the Western space community was that this has happened before, but in 2021, this is irresponsible. 
So the chances are that whatever survives the re-entry will land in the sea, but there's always a chance that it could impact somewhere and cause some damage. Early predictions from the Aerospace Corporation based in America predicted a re-entry around May 10. But that was with the caveats, it could be plus or minus 41 hours. Also, this rocket stage is going around the Earth once every 89 minutes. So even a few minutes here or there could mean a few thousand kilometers. So where it's going to land, we have no idea at the moment, apart from it's going to be between 41 and a half degrees north and 41 and a half degrees south. Now let's talk about actually what happened, the payload and all that. So the rocket was launching part of China's new space station. Tell me more. So this will consist of three modules. The first one is Tianhe, which will be the living quarters for three astronauts for up to six months at a time. It also has a docking hub. In the next few months, we will see cargo spacecraft and crewed Shenzhou spacecraft visiting the station. And then in 2022, the plan is to launch two experiment modules of a similar size up to Tianhe, which will then dock with Tianhe and form a kind of a T-shaped space station. So this is much smaller than the International Space Station, which is 420 tons. This is going to be around 66 tons, but it's carrying very advanced technology. There is an array of science experiments and projects they aim to carry out on board. And it's also a part of China's plans to boost its prestige and soft power. Before we talk about the soft power aspect of it, let's look at the science. What sort of experiments will the Chinese National Space Administration be planning to run? So they'll be looking at things like space medicine, life and biosciences, the long-term impacts of astronauts staying in space. There are other things like studying the behavior of fluids in microgravity, also combustion. They'll be looking at material science. Also, one major part of this is that after the construction phase of this three-module space station, they aim to launch a co-orbiting space telescope. So this will be kind of similar in size to the Hubble Space Telescope. Its resolution won't be quite as good, but what it does have is a field of view which is around 300 times greater. So the plan is to do deep space surveys covering about 40% of the sky over 10 years. So China has some serious and rather ambitious science goals for this space station. And how about working with international partners? Usually space programs do that, but of course they're not working with America. Are they working with other countries? That's a very pertinent question. So there is the suggestion that had China been invited to the International Space Station rather than effectively blocked by the US, we wouldn't be seeing the development of this Chinese space station now, but rather China would have had its astronauts on the ISS already. So China has initiated a project with the United Nations Space Office in which they solicit and select a number of instruments from all around the world. And these experiments will be flown up to the, the space station. So China is keen to say that this is a truly international space station where no one is prevented from accessing. However, this is not in any way the same case as the ISS. For the Chinese space station, they are in control of everything and they're inviting these experiments on board. And then it will also be interesting to see from which countries China hosts astronauts on the space station. So this is like belt, road, and orbit. In other words, a way of China to exercise its soft power, develop alliances, 
pick winners, but in space. That's one aspect of this, yes. So the European Space Agency actually has had some exchanges between astronauts for training with the view to sending a European astronaut up to the Chinese space station. However, my understanding is that that is not moving ahead very quickly. And what we may see is instead, and much earlier, China hosting an astronaut from, for example, Pakistan has expressed an interest in sending one of their astronauts up to the Chinese space station. And that comes at the same time as India wanting to develop its own human spaceflight capabilities. So there's a lot going on in Asian space politics and rivalries. Now, all of this is coming as the funding is running out for the International Space Station. What does the future look like for the ISS? My understanding is that the agreement between all parties runs until the end of 24. So the Russian side have been making public noises that maybe they won't continue after 2025 and that they would maybe deorbit their modules and look to set up their own space station. America seems much more willing to keep the project running, especially with, in the back of their mind, not wanting to leave China as the only game in town in low Earth orbit. So one thing that complicates that is America is launching its Artemis program to send astronauts to the moon. So running both of these will be very expensive. So one thing NASA is considering is the commercialization of the International Space Station in which commercial companies can use this as their outpost and basically hand over the responsibility of operations in low Earth orbit to to elsewhere. And what about China's space program? What's the future for that? Well, on one side, you have this Chinese space station in which they will be developing capabilities and experience over the next 10 years. At the same time, China is working on a robotic lunar exploration program. So what I think we'll see a decade down the line is the convergence of their human spaceflight efforts in low Earth orbit and the robotic lunar ambitions that they have into sending astronauts to the moon in the 2030s and possibly developing a more permanent base from which they can carry out a range of science and research projects. That's so interesting. Andrew Jones, thank you very much. Thanks very much for having me. After the construction of the new space station, China's space agency is expected to launch a co-orbiting telescope with a greater visible area than the Hubble telescope that was launched in 1990 and still orbits Earth. Liftoff of the space shuttle Discovery with the Hubble Space Telescope, our window on the universe. Hubble is used in the Sloan Digital Sky Survey, which allows researchers to observe the cosmos. These sky surveys are composed of thousands of image tiles, which are processed, corrected for distortion, and stitched together to create a seamless panoramic image of the sky. But what if we could do that with other uncharted domains we want to investigate? Bring together thousands of disparate images to get a new picture of the whole. A pair of scientists are doing just that, taking the technology from the telescope and applying it to the microscope to map cancer. Dr. Janice Taub is a pathologist at Johns Hopkins University. She teamed up with the noted cosmologist Alex Sazley and others to create an image of cellular structures as if it were the universe. Dr. Taub, welcome to Babbage. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Tell me about the research that you're doing. What is Astropath? 
We are substituting cells for the stars and galaxies of astronomy. Okay, but telescopes look at the sky and microscopes look at cells. So how exactly does it work, what you're actually doing? Right, so they still use the same multispectral and spatial type analysis. And in both of these disciplines, really the focus is on spatial, how things are organized. And to be able to get a clean data set with enough numbers and events to be able to pull out signal to noise ratio at at very subtle levels. What's something that astronomy accomplished 20 years ago in pathology is really recognizing the need for that same paradigm in our space today. So you can take your analog from the telescope to the microscope and then the cosmic web to the tumor microenvironment then one level down are, are the galaxies and the cells. And we can even dive deeper now, which is to include the spectral signature versus the genomics that we see in many of these cancer cells. So why did you need to use this technique of astropath to get that finding? Why wasn't that finding possible through other techniques? Well, we are trying to spatially understand the organization of tumors. And it turned out that we were really struggling with the data that we were generating. We use immunofluorescent markers to identify tumor cells and a number of the other cells that are in tumors, just normal vessels and immune cells, and to understand their architecture. Our idea was that this would help provide useful information about how cancer progresses and potential ways to treat it. It was the ability to map markers with a high fidelity single cell resolution across an entire tumor. So we were not only able to identify with great precision that these two molecules were expressed on this specific cell type, but we were then able to localize them to the border of where the host immune system is fighting the tumor. Where is this going to go in terms of producing technologies and innovations that are going to help people in the here and now? How do you translate your findings into practice? For the last 40 years, one of the ways that we manage patient tumors when we're diagnosing them is to put a single special stain, if you will, on a tumor that allows us to look at a single protein at a time. And in fact, these technologies can allow you to put six or eight, or you know, some technologies are, are claiming 40 to 50 at a time. And I see the use of them really improving the the next generation of of patient diagnostics. They'll really help us with precision immuno-oncology, putting the, the cancer patient on the right therapy for them from the start. Have there been any surprising results? 
We found a killer T cell known to fight cancer, which expressed a molecule that was previously thought to only be expressed by so-called regulatory T cells, those that turn off the immune system. And so it's really exciting. I mean, it, it provides a launch point for a new predictive test for immunotherapy. And it also opens the door to a previously unappreciated biology, which is relevant to the function of these anti-tumor T cells. And so what are you doing with the data? We're publishing our tumor and immune atlases in an open source format. So others can go and and mine this data and and hopefully um, use it for ideas and experiments that, that we haven't even thought of yet. I will point out that we've now generated tumor maps on three different tumor types. How would you describe the scope of your methodology? It's absolutely technology development and deployment, as well as really translating that discovery platform, hopefully into the transformation of cancer diagnostic pathology. Dr. Taub, thank you very much and all the best with your research. Thanks so much. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024. Imagine a cake, freshly baked, fragrant. What could possibly improve it? Yum. There's an obvious answer, of course, icing. And a final flourish, a cherry on top. But does the more is more attitude apply beyond the world of patisserie? What about those other bits of folk wisdom, less is more and keeping it simple? Could the need for such reminders be evidence of a blind spot in people's thinking? If you look at someone like Marie Kondo, she's built this entire business empire out of pointing out to people something that, you know, maybe you think would be obvious. You probably don't need quite as much stuff as you think you do, and that simplicity has its attractions. Tim Cross is The Economist technology editor. Tim, give me an example where subtraction was better than addition. Back in the 1960s and 1970s in Formula One racing, a man called Colin Chapman was in his pomp. So he was the founder of a car company and a Formula One team called Lotus. His sort of big thing, his approach to designing these cars was to simplify and add lightness. Was, that was his, his sort of catchphrase. And the idea was, you know, you, you could build a car with all the latest bells and whistles, load it down with the turbochargers and massive engines and, and, and whatever else. And it might be faster in a straight line. But if you had a car that was just light and simple, you minimize the weight, that would be faster everywhere else. And, you know, it wasn't just torque as well. If you look, Lotus won a whole string of constructors championships in the 60s and 70s off the back of that kind of approach to design. So that's a great example of how it works in practice. Is there any research to underpin the idea that less is more? We've just seen a paper published in Nature, actually, by somebody called Gabrielle Adams and and several of her colleagues at the University of Virginia. And really interesting piece of research. It didn't start with any grand psychological theory. Apparently, it just started from them noting these bits of folk wisdom about, you know, keeping it simple and, 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 and less being more. And also one of their 
children solving a little mechanical engineering puzzle in a kind of unintuitive way. That sort of sparked them into looking into this whole area. They ran a whole bunch of observational studies, basically, just sort of looking at how people would behave. One particular American university, it wasn't named, appointed a new boss. They came in and then, you know, as they do, they sent round uh, an all-hands email asking for suggestions on how the place could, could run better. They got 827 suggestions, 581 of those involved adding new things, like, I don't know, more money for sending students abroad or something. But only 70 suggested that, you know, the university would be better if something was taken away, like, for instance, the preferential admissions treatment that sometimes gets given to children of alumni. So it seems like a real bias in people's thinking. Why do you think it is we have this cognitive bias to want to innovate by adding rather than subtracting? This was the next area that they looked into, you know, so having established that this thing was real, they wanted to know, well, what exactly is going on here? And there were, I guess, kind of two options. One was that people were, you know, they were actually thinking about taking things away and, and, you know, considering subtractive options and so on, but then making a conscious choice to not actually do that. Or maybe more interestingly, they wondered if there might be some sort of subconscious association between the concept of improving something and adding features. So they flipped it around and gave people a diagram of a golf course and said, OK, can you make this thing worse rather than better? And even then people were like, yeah, sure. So they added a bunch of new features rather than taking them away. It turned out that the more time you have to practice, the more likely you are to spot subtractive solutions when those are strictly better than, than the additive ones. And you're worse at doing it when you're operating under something called cognitive load, which is basically you just fancy psychologists speak for trying to do two different things at once. So when your brain is busy trying to split its attention between two tasks, you default even more strongly to adding things than taking them away. One sort of similar question is whether this is a cultural thing or a real human universal. And they have some preliminary data, at least from Japan and Germany, which suggests that it happens there as well. So it's not just the kind of bias existed by American people who happen to participate in random college psychology studies. But there's also the issue that some people might consider subtractive options, but just not choose to pursue them. We've seen in the last 15, 20 years, this whole subfield of psychology that looks at quirks and kinks in how humans think. So you know, economists for many years assumed that people were rational in a very kind of simple and, and sort of naive sense. And you know, psychology came along and said, well, actually, that's not true. They have all these cognitive shortcuts, cognitive biases, sort of heuristic approaches that rather than sit down and sort of explicitly reason through every decision they make, most of the time people use a rule of thumb that, you know, works pretty well most of the time kind of thing, but sometimes can lead you astray. And this example of, of you know, preferring to add stuff to a system rather than, than taking it away, even when taking it away gives it objectively better performance. They reckon this is just another entry to add to our list of human cognitive biases. So what are the ways that people can overcome this additive bias so that we do the right thing, not just add more to the same old thing? Well, we're getting way beyond the scope of the paper now, but I think one of the interesting, maybe suggestive results along those lines was that practice seems to help. So if you give people the chance to practice a task several times, you know, you, you, you set the task up so that the subtractive solution is, is sort of clearly better. In that situation, if you give people the chance to practice before they have to do it for real, then the chance of them spotting that solution goes up. So like everything, I guess, practice makes perfect. Tim, thank you very much. Thanks, Ken. And thank you for listening to Babbage. For more analysis like this, subscribe to The Economist. Just go to economist.com slash podcast offer 
to get your best introductory deal. The link is in the show notes. And while you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. The producers are Jason Hoskin, Abby Soye Oshindairo, and William Warren. The editor is Sandra Shmueli. I'm Kenneth Coutier, and in London, this is The Economist. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation... Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.